Um, If you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, We are wrapping up, finishing out the final Sunday of our summer collection that's been entitled The Illustrations of Jesus. And uh, we are looking at the different parables that Jesus told. Uh, Jesus' favorite method of communication was storytelling. And so he told these illustrations and these stories again and again to help us understand the kingdom of God, to understand what, uh, what, 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 what we have a role to play when it comes to the life of God and, and to the kingdom of God. And uh, so Jesus told some of these amazing stories, and we're kind of looking at them. And today I want to look at uh, one last parable, and that's found in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse uh, 25. This is a parable that uh, most uh, people are familiar with, even people who aren't really familiar with faith in God or following God or even study the Bible. They've heard of the parable or the phrase, Good Samaritan. And so we're going to look at that parable and that illustration this morning. Luke 10, starting in verse 25, this is what Jesus said. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, replied Jesus. How do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and will love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you... You will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and uh, who exactly is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and When he saw the man, passed by on the other side. So too, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. It's kind of like when you see that person in Walmart. You know which one I'm talking about? Like You're like, oh, look, I can't go down that aisle. I've got to go down this aisle. That passing, yeah, y'all are too religious for me. Y'all don't know. It'll be all right. You'll, you'll, You'll get there one day. I mean, I've never done that to any of you, ever. I'm just just kidding. And they were passing by on the other side. But, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his, his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The very next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any other expenses that you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Would you say that phrase with me? Go and do likewise. 
go and do likewise. In uh, the, the time that we have remaining, I want to bring a message to you today, a sermon entitled Loopholes. Loopholes. If you're online, type it into the chat. Loopholes. Loopholes. Looking for the loopholes. Now, this is a parable that has some widespread reach. I mentioned earlier that um, even if you aren't a follower of Jesus, even if you don't believe in the Christian way, if, if it's not something that is normal or integrated into your life, you have at least heard or perhaps even used the phrase, Good Samaritan. It's come to be a universal term that we would use to describe doing good deeds for someone else. Just simply doing good, you are a, then a good Samaritan. And the word good in this parable isn't so much so summarizing the Samaritan's lifestyle, but perhaps the actions that he took were good. And we get into this parable, and it has such a broad scope of understanding this. This parable alone, like many of Jesus' parables, have multiple layers to them. Where it, it has a meaning in one context, it has application. Any, if you take it and you transfer it to a different context, well, it has application there too. And no matter the context that you would want to embed this parable or these truths these, that run parallel, the story that is parallel to these truths, you have to understand that there is truth to be extracted. There are principles to be applied and understood that help us go and do likewise in a variety of, of contexts. Parables like this give us a groundwork for interacting as people of God with multiple layers of application to them. It helps us to move our thinking toward what is called a high context way of thinking or a high context way of communication. About five or six years ago now I was introduced to this idea of high context communication versus low-context communication. And uh, uh, so to try and help you understand this a little bit, I went to the world's uh, most trusted resource, Wikipedia, and uh, pulled out this definition, which I happen to believe to be accurate and on part. It says this, and anthropology, I tried this word like seven times, and I always get twisted. Anthropology. I don't know why I can't say it, but my tongue doesn't want me to say it. In really intellectual circles and high-end research, those who study humanity would say this, that high-context culture and a low-context culture are ends of a continuum of how explicit the messages exchanged in a culture are and how important the context is in communication. The continuum pictures how people communicate with others through their range of communication abilities, utilizing gestures, relations, body language, and verbal messages or nonverbal messages. High and low context cultures typically refer to language, to language groups, nationalities, or regional communities. However, the concept may also apply to corporations, professions, and other cultural groups, as well as the settings such as online and offline communication. In other words, we all 
fall into a continuum of either being high context in our ability to communicate and relate to other people or low context in our ability to relate and communicate and somewhere in between. And typically, based on the region that you were born in or grew up in or the nation in which you were raised, it determines naturally kind of you become a product of that environment. Uh, uh, places like uh, the East and, and like Japan and China, these places would be high context environments where they do nonverbal and verbal skill really, really well, where they read between the lines, where it's not just the specifics of what you said, but the interpretation of your intentions behind what you said. And they're able to extrapolate who you are. And, and because they are very, very communal and family-oriented in their lives, take into a broader context of understanding what you possibly meant and where you are coming from based on your family upbringing, based on your circle of influence, based on your own experience. And they take all of that into consideration, not just the words that came out of your mouth. But then you take what is typically understood that those of us here in America are more on that low context, by and large, side, where what you say is all we hear. We don't care what you meant. We don't care what it was. If we can tweet it, post it, headline it, we're going to extrapolate it and get it to say what we want it to say, and we are going to interpret meaning for you. That's why it's really a, a good thing that emojis have come along in our world, to help us include the emotion that we meant behind the words that you are reading, because we don't want you to misinterpret the words that you are reading to mean something that I did not intend for them to mean. And we have this uh, sometimes predisposition to think on a lower context to where we don't fully take into the full context everything that is going on in a person's life. Everything that they could have meant by it. And we, we remove the layers in an attempt to be simple and clear we actually miss the larger context of perhaps what somebody was trying to say. We don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We just choose to doubt them. We don't take into account what they intended. We just took into account what we wanted to hear. And we often miss the greater and broader meaning. And, and this is often what is missing in our culture and our discourse today, is it not? Where somebody types something, says something, posts something, and we just see it for this, and we don't really give pause to stop to think what they might mean or might not mean. And we jump to conclusions that perhaps we ought not jump to. And I think that parables like this come along, and they help us look at the story and the reality of humanity and the story of God that is being woven into the fabric of our lives, and it helps us move closer on the continuum to have a greater compassion, to have a greater construct, to have a greater understanding. And parables like this are so multiple layered in its context and contextualization that we have to stop and look at all of the possibilities of what this parable is getting at. Like we could absolutely sit here and look at it and say that Jesus is giving us zero room to allow for racism to exist in our lives. There is no room for racism in the gospel. See, Jews and Samaritans absolutely despised each other. They, they were different. They, the Jews created a constructive life to completely resist and keep down and keep away systematically the Samaritans. 
if you want to put it in today's context, there would be a fountain for Jews and a different water fountain for Samaritans. And Jesus comes and he crosses the line and he distinguishes and he says, you need to have a higher context of understanding that behind this color of this person's skin or or behind the place where they grew up or the history of what was of their people, you don't get to categorically write off an entire group of people because of the location in which they were once born. Jesus leaves us no room for those things. It requires a greater, a higher level of context to really start looking at it. It requires a greater context for us to to understand that when somebody says black lives matter, perhaps what they're simply saying is that there is value in somebody who has dark colored skin. Perhaps what they aren't meaning, though, is that they believe and subscribe to everything that an organization and a, and a propagation of, of, of thoughts and ideologies that, that perhaps isn't really what we would agree with, but it doesn't make the statement any less true. And we wrestle, and, and, our, and, and sometimes in our, our proclivity to think in a low context, we miss the greater meaning or a greater purpose behind those things. And they say, well, you ought to just say that instead well, let me break it into another term. Let me bring it to the Christian house. There are many people who stand up and say, I'm a Christian. That when you look at their life and you look at their attitudes and you look at how they talk, you're like, that's not my brand of Christianity. That doesn't fall in line with everything that the Bible says. But nobody's kicking rocks and throwing things and ostracizing them just because of that. We just simply say, ah, I'm going to let my actions speak louder than their words. There's a high context, there's, a lo- there's, there's multiple layers to this, and this parable gives us no room. There is no wiggle room in this parable to allow seeds and mentality and jokes and thoughts of racism to exist. It, it, it applies to that context. At the same breath, this parable applies to the context as it relates to our own human idolatry. See, at the very beginning of the, the parable, the, the, the man of the law comes to Jesus and says, what do, I, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I think you've got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. I, I think there is no room for our hearts to be surrendered in passionate pursuit of anything in a greater measure than what we would pursue and be passionate about God. There's no room for it. I can't chase money. I can't chase the American dream. I don't get to chase a flag. I don't get to chase old glory in replace of the cross. I don't get to chase any of those things and replace it. No, if God is going to be supreme ruler and king in my life, he gets to be first in every area. He gets to decide how I treat my spouse. He gets to decide how I raise my kids. The gospel is what tells me how I get to interact with other humanity, and the priorities of my life are set by the king of my life. You could take this parable and apply it to the context of our own proclivity to have idols that we fall and we bow to and we surrender our allegiance to in a way that supersedes the way we would bow in worship and reverence and allegiance to our God who created all. This parable speaks to those contexts. It's a high context parable. Multiple layers of things. It's a context in this parable to where we realize that Jesus again and again would cross lines in order to reach somebody. 
Again and again, Jesus wouldn't draw a line in the sand to keep somebody out or to categorically write them off, but instead, he would cross over those lines so that they might experience the love and the grace of God. And so in order to do so, he tells a story who the hero of the story is one of the most hated people of the day, a Samaritan. And there were two God-fearing Jews who walked by on the other side, passing over the opportunity to be kind and loving and neighborly. And instead it was a a Samaritan? You could take and substitute the word Samaritan with any number of groups of people that perhaps you've categorically written off. You, you could say, well, it wasn't a Samaritan. It was the CEO of Planned Parenthood who stopped and did good. You could, you could exchange it for the boss that always pays you an unfair wage and works you to the bone and is never grateful. You could put them in that place of Samaritan. You could, you could put in the place of somebody of a different sexual orientation that you don't agree with and don't like and have to wrestle with the own hatred in your heart and put them in that place. See, this parable, it causes us to take it to a context where we look and we recognize that perhaps maybe we aren't the hero in the story. Perhaps we're the one paralyzed in the story and somebody else comes over and does us good. Who would we not want to do good to us but yet at the end of the day would be overwhelmed because they did? At the same token, you can't look at this parable, I said it a minute ago, and say that Jesus was all of a sudden saying that because they did good, that meant that their lifestyle was good. And we have a hard time wrestling those two two things. We have a hard time reconciling those, those realities in our lives because if they do bad, then often they are evil and they are incapable of anything good. But Jesus says, this person who is evil, who wasn't walking according to the law, Samaritans were not practicing everything that the Jews were practicing. They were not walking in the favor of God in their lives. They weren't walking in the full blessing of God. They had made choices in their lives that weren't God honoring in this context. But Jesus says they still did good. So which one was the neighbor again? And we have to wrestle out some of these things. And if you try to categorically write off a group of people or to simply say that because we choose to be kind to a group of people automatically means that we rubber stamp everything that they do. If you live in either one of those camps, you're missing the point of the parable. Because that's not the point. It plays into it and we have to wrestle it out and we have to think about it. But that's not the point of The parable, see, it's parables like this that help us understand a principle that we apply to our lives that help us live in God-honoring ways no matter the context you would find yourself. No matter the kind of neighbor that you would come across that would need your help. No matter those things, there are principles that need to lead us in this text Not to find loopholes, not to find a new platform to stand on to win more arguments and to become more bigoted, but rather to find a way to live as the people of God, bringing about the kingdom of God everywhere we go. So so what are those principles? I'll share three with you real quick. Three things that I think Jesus is getting at and wanting us to see. Three things that I think will help us love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength a little more. 
as we love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And some of us, man, we love ourselves real good. Some of us don't love ourselves enough. And to either end, there's a proper way to understand and grab a hold of God's love in this moment so that we apply it and we live it out. Here's the first thing that I think helps us discover. The first principle in this parable I think we need to grab a hold of that helps filter our lives. Number one, it's simply this, make it personal. Jesus makes this parable personal. When, when the, the expert of the law came to him and said, how do I get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? Jesus says, well, what? you're the expert in the law. What do you read? How do you read what's written? I think there's something to the kingdom of God and scripture itself when we come to parables like this, when we come to, to the truth of God's word, we have to be willing to make it personal first. It's all about what is God trying to say to you? What, what is it that you're reading? See, God is concerned with your personal posture in your heart. He's wanting you to see which person in this story do you relate to the most. Are you the high religious leader? Are you the one busy doing things like the Levite? Are you the one beaten and broken? Or are you the Samaritan that doesn't really matter who the person is that is hurting? If they're hurting, you want to have compassion and help them. Which, which person are you in this story? Which one are you? How are you reading these things? I think it's possible that like the lawyer in this story, we can have the right answer but have the wrong heart posture and make the wrong application. It's not enough to have the right answer, friends. Church family, it's not enough to have the right answer to the things that are going on in the world. It's an issue of having the right heart posture in our application of the right answer that we possess. And God is interested in that. It matters to God. I think it's about applying it in the right way. See, see you could use the Bible as a magnifying glass to examine someone else's life. Or you can use it as a mirror for it to read your life. I believe that the Bible isn't something that we just read. The Bible is something that wants to read you and read me. James 1 says it like this, starting in verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive your own self. Do what it says. Anyone could listen to the word but if you don't do what it says you're like someone who looks at your own face in a mirror and after looking at yourself goes away and immediately forgets what it is that you look like i think sometimes we do that at church don't we we come and we hear the word and we look at it and we're like oh yeah that's me oh yeah that cuts deep that hits me here and then we go live our lives every single day of the week and nothing has really shifted or changed Years later, nothing in our lives has really gotten better and improved. And we're like, yep, I gave church a try. It didn't really work. I don't know that it didn't work. I just think you didn't work. It in to your life. If you want scripture to work, you got to work it. You got to work it into your life. I've got a beat and a rhythm in my mind and I'm about to start to create a groove. But it's like, oh, this is church. Keep it. Keep it holy, keep it one and two, keep it one and two, one and two. If you want scripture to work in your life and come alive, you have to work scripture into your life. 
This is the beauty of our connect groups. We don't just gather to have a different Bible study and to learn more stuff. We actually gather together, talk about the weekly sermon, and figure out how do I live that out this week in this life. And I'm sitting around a circle looking at people in the eyes saying, this is what it's saying to me. This is how I'm making it personal today. And this is how I'm going to live it out. And we all look at you and go, go for it. Go do it. And we encourage you and we pray with you. We challenge and we hold you accountable and we develop friendships along the way. Why? Because you've got to make it personal it's not just a magnifying glass to examine what's wrong with the world and the people around us it's not some bully pulpit that we use scripture to get what we want and manipulate our way around life no it's something that we read and we are confronted with our own frailty and humanity and we say god this is so personal to me it's personal what is jesus trying to get at in this parable in this exchange he wants you to understand you've got to make it personal it's not some abstract truth that's out there you have to make it personal for your life number two not only do we need number one make it personal number two i think the principle is simply this avoid the loopholes avoid even looking for the loopholes don't look for the loopholes of how far you can get away from god and still make it to heaven that's a loophole don't look for loopholes. Don't look for church to be the thing that you show up to wipe away all of the trash that you've lived this last week. That's a loophole. And it doesn't work that way. Avoid the loopholes. In uh, verse 29 of this parable, you see that Jesus said, hey, you answered it correctly. Go and live and love the Lord and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, do this. And you will live. But he, the man, wanted to justify himself. He was looking for a loophole. Who exactly is my neighbor anyways? He wasn't really wanting to know how to love. And he wasn't really even wanting to know who to love. He was wanting to know who do I categorically get to be dismissive of and not be responsible to love. Who is that person, Jesus? He didn't really know who he should love. He wanted permission not to love. The, the, the man was trying to justify himself. He wanted to know who isn't my neighbor. Listen, friends, when we justify ourselves and our positions, we limit our ability to give love and receive love. Let me say it again. When, when we live justifying ourselves we limit our ability to love others and to receive love from others the loophole he was looking for was to limit his scope of love who don't i have to love who do i get to categorically write off and say they're going to hell away with us they shall go where's the loophole to the love jesus closes those loopholes Friends, we need to avoid the loopholes. Don't limit love. Listen, when my kids, when they come to me uh, and, and, and they beg and they plead and they make a case as to why they should get something that I've said no to or, or why they should get this and they plead their case and they beg and they throw a fit. And if I were to relent and acquiesce to their request, they are now limited in their ability to receive the pure love 
that I would give them just because of the goodness of their father towards them. They're living with a perspective that says, ah, I threw a fit and I got what I wanted. They have limited the love of their parent. They have limited the love of their father to simply being, I throw a fit, I get what I want, rather than my father is good. He has good intentions for me, and his love endures in all things. It's limiting their ability to receive love. When you live towards others in a way where you are justifying your treatment of them, you are limiting your ability to actually love them. Avoid the loopholes. Avoid the loopholes. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who's your neighbor? Anyone who needs love. That's who your neighbor is. Anyone in need of the love of God, that's your neighbor. Anyone walking in pain, that's your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Anyone in pain, in need of God's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This kind of love never fails. Love never fails. Is it possible that your brand of love is the wrong love? Nowhere in here does it talk about confrontation. Nowhere in here does it talk about arguing. Nowhere in here does it talk about those things. It says love never fails. It is absolutely kind. It is absolutely refusing to be envious of somebody else. It is absolutely refusing to keep a scorecard of what you said last week and what he said this week and where he let me down. No, it refuses to keep a record of those things. It refuses to throw out a meme that would dishonor a governor that you don't agree with. It's all right. You don't have to say amen because oh my works just as well. <laughs> Friends, avoid the loophole to limit the scope of love. I say it's time we expand the scope of what love is. It's kind, it's patient, it's enduring, it's forgiving, it keeps no record of wrong, it believes the best, it's not easily angered, it doesn't seek its own way, it is always honorable, and it delights when truth wins out. It always protects somebody else's interest and heart. It always is willing to give trust away. It always is willing to hope the best and believe the best in them. It always is willing to persevere until the end. I say we avoid the loopholes of love. We don't not only, number one, make it personal. Number two, I think we need to avoid the loopholes. And, and finally, today, we need to act as an agent of healing. This is what the Samaritan did. 
This is what the Samaritan did in the story. He acted as an agent of healing. Compassion is willing to act even if there are obstacles in the way. Even if there are obstacles. Why didn't these other two guys act compassionately towards this man? I don't know. We're not told why. Maybe, maybe the reason they didn't act was they were afraid. They were afraid that if they got down on their knees and helped this man beaten, they themselves would become contaminated. If they got too close to the pain and the sin, they themselves would get contaminated with the pain and the sin. Maybe it was a fear of being misunderstood. Heaven forbid that, that by interacting with people who are broken and hurting, that we get misinterpreted in our motives, that all of a sudden we agree with their lives and how they're living their lives. Jesus was always accused of being a friend of sinners, yet he never sinned. We have to have a high context ability to look at somebody's life and say, maybe just maybe they're bringing life to a situation. Maybe just maybe they're, they're allowing people who are hurting to come in. What, what if it was fear that kept them from helping? Maybe it was a fear of a reaction. Friends, I, I'm, I'm just going to be really, really honest. Today, I know I'm saying a lot of things that are really heavy, really hard-hitting, and probably confront many things of our own perspectives. And, and the reason this is the last parable that we're going through was because I was afraid to really bring the message that God was giving me to preach. Because I wasn't sure how people would react to it. In fact, I, I prayed, Lord, I'll move it to the end. And hopefully by the end, all of the racial tension of, uh, of, of the things of, would begin to subside and it would be a little less heated. Enter Jacob Blake to the mix. And the tragedy that struck there and the emotions and the grief and the pain and hasn't subsided. It still exists in our world. And yet we have to confront it with what God is actually saying about these things and look at our own hearts and make it personal in our own lives. And I thought maybe God would change his mind and give me a different parable to preach. So I hope that if I pushed it to the end of the collection, maybe there would be another parable that God wanted me to preach. But yet here we are, trying to act as an agent of healing in your life and in my life. Maybe it was a time restriction. Maybe that's why they didn't help. They were just too rushed. Friends, compassion is never convenient. People in need will always show up when you have the least amount of time to give. But that's why it's important that we learn how to live our lives with a little bit of margin in our own schedule so that we can respond to the promptings of the people that we see who need. Maybe they were just skeptical. Ha, what's it really going to help? I mean, I, I don't have a donkey, I can't really help, I, I can't do much. My, my ability, maybe if I help them, I'm just enabling them. I don't want to be in an enabler to perpetuate the cycle in their life. Maybe they were skeptical to even help, thinking that their contribution would be too small to even matter. I saw this week that said, if you think small, something small doesn't have the opportunity to create a big impact, Try going to sleep in a room with a mosquito. Small can impact. No, you might not change the course of all of history. No, you might not change everything, but it can matter to that one person, your act of compassion. Friends, what if this week we just simply decided we were going to be act, act as agents of healing, and if we see a need, we're just going to meet it if we can. Not just because the need exists, but because something is highlighted in our eyes and we're like, oh, 
God, you brought this person to my life. I, I see the need. I want to meet this need. What if we just simply decided to act, to go and do likewise? Just to act as an agent of healing. Don't limit your compassion because of fear, time pressures, or even skepticism. Those are obstacles, yes. But what if we just predecided that we were going to be agents who were willing to see a need and meet a need? Be, be a person that if you see another human being and interact with them, encourage them and honor them. You know what every human being needs? They need more encouragement and they need somebody to prove that they matter. Every human being, if they are breathing, they need encouragement. If they are breathing, they need somebody to honor them and help them see that they matter and have value. Every human being needs those things. So this week, if you see a person, encourage them and honor them. And in so doing, you act as an agent of healing. Uh, about a month and a half ago, maybe two months now, after service, we were talking with someone here in our church. And they were like, how you doing? And I'm always honest, and I'm always authentic. But depending on the person, I may not be fully transparent. It's called healthy boundaries. But this is particular person is somebody that I knew, that I trusted, that, and I said, you know what, it's actually been kind of a tough week for Amber and I. We're just feeling the pressure, feeling it a little bit. And they said, you know what, I'm going to be praying for you this week, Pastor. I said, thank you. That next day or two, I, I actually don't remember, I think it was the very next day, they sent me a text, hey, are you home? I want to come by. Which always makes me a little nervous because you never know what's happening next in that moment. And they came by with some cookies that were absolutely delicious and unhealthy. And I ate plenty of them. And they brought by a jar of some family secret recipe barbecue sauce, which I am thoroughly enjoying. It was just a simple gesture and act as an agent of healing to breathe encouragement and honor to somebody. It didn't change all of the world, but man, it sure breathes some life into us. You don't know what a small act of kindness could do. You don't know what a word of a compliment could do. You don't know what something simple like that might do to somebody else. Let's just live as people who say, Lord, we're going to make it personal. We're going to avoid the loopholes and try to limit our scope of love. And we are going to act as agents of healing in the world around us. We're going to see people and we're going to encourage them. We're going to see people and we're going to honor them. We're going to be kind with our words, with our actions. Jesus has given you and he's given me a ministry of reconciliation. Helping people reconnect people to people and people to their heavenly father. Jesus himself said it like this in Luke 4. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah. But he'd gone to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And it was his custom. And he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and a recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
set the oppressed free. Whether you think they are or they aren't, to set them free and to proclaim that this is the year of God's favor on their life. He invites us to be people who are agents of this kind of healing. Friends, I I want you to see something today. In this story, I want you for a minute to imagine you are the man laying in the road. And the good Samaritan, his name is Jesus. He's the savior of your soul. He's the good Samaritan who stopped all of what he was doing in eternity, separating time, came down to the earth. It took on the form of humanity, you and me. And he came to you who was wounded and beaten and broken and without hope. And he says, I will bind up your wounds. I will heal your disease. I will take the the, the chastisement of peace and I will lay it on me. And by my stripes, you can be mended and made whole. What did the Good Samaritan do in the story? He got down on his knees and used oil and wine to mend the wounds. Oil and wine. The wine was used to heal the man. It was was the alcohol in the wine that was needed to cleanse the wounds. Friends, it is the blood of Jesus represented in the wine at the communion table that brings healing to your life, brings healing to your soul, brings healing to the wounds that no one else could heal, that no one else knows about. He's the one who brings healing to those things. It is his blood that is the wine that cleanses our wounds. It is the bread that we eat that satisfies the deep longings of our soul where we feel misunderstood, misappropriated, uh, where we feel left out, where we feel lacking in an area, in inept to do what we need to do. It is the bread of his body that satisfies the very cravings of our soul. He is who you need. He is your savior and he is the ultimate good Samaritan. When you feel anemic of love, you need the bread of life to satisfy you. When you feel bleeding out of your sins and the muck and the reality of your life, you need the wine of the new covenant to bring healing to your body. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we take a minute, pause, and just linger and reflect for a minute. Let's make this word personal to us today. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you right now through today's message? What is he saying to you? Just pause and for a minute think about it. take the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ. He took it and he says, this is my body which is being broken 
for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and remember the Lord's body? Then he took a cup full of wine. And he says, this represents my blood, which will be poured out. It's the wine of a new covenant to bring healing balm into your deepest, most severe wounds of your life. By my stripes you are healed, and by my blood you are forgiven. It's not in our righteousness, but it's in his blood that forgives and redeems us together. Let's remember that. Father, I pray right now for your people, your loved ones. Those of us, Lord, we know we are dearly loved. Lord, where we would maybe feel anemic in our own love and our own value, would you just remind us that you stopped everything to come to our rescue? And Lord, for those of us who feel like we've gotten it wrong, where we've not done it right, Lord, would we recognize your healing in our lives? Lord, this week, would you help us to make this parable personal? Would you help us to avoid the loopholes, trying to limit our scope of love? And Lord, would you help us be agents of healing everywhere we go, encouraging someone else and honoring them because they matter to you? We ask these things in the name of the Father who loves us the Son who demonstrated what love looks like in dying for us. And in the name of the Holy Spirit who is always with us, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If, if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.